0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts, stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Hello and welcome to Squawk We're live from Munich and CNBC headquarters here in London. These are your headlines today.
2: The death of Alexei Navalny and Russia's invasion of Ukraine dominated the conversations at the Munich Security Conference. The NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, tells CNBC the US will not abandon the defense alliance.
3: I don't think it will happen. Uh, what we have seen over the uh, previous uh, uh, US administrations, uh, Republican and Democrat, is that actually the US has increased its military presence in Europe and it will really uh, violate uh, fundamental U.S. security interests.
1: Russian forces take a key city in eastern Ukraine in their first major victory in nine months, with President Volodymyr Zelensky saying his troops are waiting for more weapons.
4: Chinese equities make a tepid return to trade after the Lunar New Year break, whilst official data shows tourism spending topping pre-COVID levels for the holiday period.
0: The EU looks set to take a 500 million euro bite out of Apple. As amid reporting the tech giant will get its first ever fine from the block over access to its music streaming services.
1: Hundreds of people have been arrested at vigils in Russia held for prominent Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny who died on Friday. Navalny's team believes the anti-corruption campaigner who was held in a prison near the Arctic Circle was murdered on the orders of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now the Kremlin has not commented on Navalny's death. Meanwhile global leaders including US President Joe Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky have accused Moscow of being responsible for Navalny's death. Anti-Kremlin activist and financier Bill Browder told CNBC on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference that Navalny's death was a strategic move from President Putin.
5: Putin has to create the the, the sense of legitimacy, and the last thing he wants to do is have Alexei Navalny um, saying things from prison that gets people to um, not support Putin. And so I think that this is a pre-election gambit that Putin is taking, kill his main opponent and send a message to everybody else that if you get involved with opposition politics, you die. That's the message."
4: The Russian flag has been raised over Avdivka, a town in the eastern part of Ukraine's Donetsk region, with the Russian military taking full control of the town. It marks Russia's biggest gain since troops captured the city of Bakhmut last year. Meanwhile the former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton warned that Donald Trump will waste no time pulling the U.S. out of NATO if he returns to the White House. Clinton, who ran against the former president in 2016, urged leaders to take his comments seriously.
6: We have a long struggle ahead of us. And the obvious point to make about Donald Trump is take him literally and seriously. He means what he says. People did not take him literally and seriously in 2016. Now he is telling us what he intends to do. And people who try to wish it away, brush it away, are living in an alternative uh, reality. He will do everything he can to become an absolute authoritarian leader if given the opportunity to do so. And he will pull us out of NATO even though the Congress passed a resolution saying that he couldn't without congressional support because he will just not fund our obligations.
4: Um, Sylvia joins us now with uh, more from the Munich Security Conference. Um, brilliant work over the weekend, but if ever this conference were framed by an event uh, of current events, it was the death of Alexei Navalny. Um, the reactions were thick and fast and uh, were well, very interesting. Why don't you tell us what you found out? So,
2: definitely, that took people aback here. It was a very surprising development. On Friday, I actually had to break the news to a U.S. lawmaker that I was about to interview. And no doubt that uh, the reports and then the confirmations that Alexei Nalvani had died in a Russian prison dominated many of the conversations on the ground. And I would recall the fact that the wife of Alexei Nalvani, she was among the participants here at the Munich Security Conference when those reports started to emerge. She took to the stage. And she asked the audience, let's fight Russia's horrific regime. That was her main message. So naturally, that then was essentially the main topic of conversation on Friday, and then once again on Saturday. But no doubt, the elephant in the room, Steve, as we approached the Munich Security Conference was the role of the United States in the international security order. After the comments of the former president Donald Trump saying that he would not come to the rescue of NATO allies that were not spending 2% of GDP in defense in case they were attacked by Russia. Overall, there's concerns about what a potential Trump presidency could mean for the role the United States plays also within NATO. And you played there one soundbite from Hillary Clinton in one of the side events here. She did stress that we need to take Trump's comments seriously. And she did acknowledge that she thinks if he becomes the next president, he will take the United States out of the defense alliance. Now, it was very also very important to hear from some of the US administration members that were at the Munich Security Conference. Vice President Kamala Harris. She arrived here and she was very keen to stress that her vision and Biden's vision for NATO is very different from Donald Trump's. She said that Trump's vision is actually dangerous and that the United States still plays and wants to play a critical role when it comes to the international security order. I also have to say that I had the chance to speak to different lawmakers from the United States throughout the weekend and both the Republican members that were here and Democratic members that were also here at the Munich Security Conference, they said that the United States will not pull out of the defense alliance. Let's take a look. We've just recently passed a law
6: that says that you can't reverse that without the two-thirds vote of the United States Senate. So people were arguing whether a president could take us out unilaterally. We have answered that question. United States law is it would take a two-thirds vote of the United States Senate to get out. That is never going to happen. Having said that, we urge our friends over here to meet the agreement that that we all had, about 2% uh, of spending for defense. Um, There's, I think, 16 countries there now, maybe as many as 18 soon. Um, We're going to celebrate the 75th anniversary
3: of NATO in in, uh, Washington, D.C. this summer. We'd like to see everybody at 2% at that time. The Congress of the United States comes together to show our solidarity with NATO. We are a strong partner. We're here today. We're here tomorrow. We want to strengthen it. We're frustrated with Hungary because we want to see the expansion of NATO to include Sweden. It's a frustration. We're frustrated with some countries that aren't meeting their 2 percent burden. So we're going to express frustration, but we are solidly in the NATO alliance. We passed legislation that makes it clear that without the congressional approval, you can't withdraw from NATO.
2: So in the conversations that I had with U.S. lawmakers, I also asked the question, how do you convince U.S. voters that it's important for them that the United States continues to support Ukraine. And some of the answers that I got was the fact that if the United States does not support Ukraine, then in the near future, we could be looking at the nuclear arms race. There were also comments from US lawmakers suggesting that the United States voters can trace, most of them can trace their past to autocratic regimes, and therefore they can sympathize, they can understand, and therefore they can also support Ukraine within, within in this context. Now, I also had the chance to speak to the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg himself, and he also made the point that it is also important for the United States to be a member of NATO because the defense alliance also makes Washington DC and the overall United States a lot stronger.
3: I don't think it will happen. Uh, What we have seen over the previous uh, uh, US administrations, uh, Republican and Democrat, is that actually the US has increased its military presence in Europe, and it will really uh, violate uh, fundamental US security interests. We have to remember that, uh, that uh, it makes U.S. stronger. In the United States, you are concerned about the size of China. U.S. represents 24, 25% of the world's GDP. Together with NATO allies, uh, United States, we, we represent 50% of the world's uh, GDP and 50% of the world's military might. So as long as we stand together, we are safe, and that is also uh, the case for the United States.
2: Now, Jens Stoltenberg was also very keen to highlight that the United States has never fought a war on their own and that the only time that Article 5 of the Defense Alliance that says an attack on one is an attack on them all was only invoked once by the United States at the time of the 9-11 attacks.
1: Olivia, I want to ask you also about China because this cropped up while the focus is on Ukraine at this stage in the Middle East. The situation around China and decoupling that's been taking place by a number of nations pushed back here too from the Chinese.
2: So that was one of the topics at the Munich Security Conference, but it was definitely not the headline. What I did hear when it comes to that is that there is an overall concern about how much defense spending we're seeing in the Indo-Pacific region. The US lawmakers I spoke with also said that this is a very important area for them and one that they are monitoring closely, but in a, when you look at. The overall conversations that happened here at Munich Security Conference, that was not their focus, at least for now.
4: Uh, Sylvia, thank you very much indeed. And for all of the calming words from the NATO sec, Gen, from others as well, the fact is that the man who could be the Republican candidate for presidency has not yet commented on Alexei Navalny's death. Just let that sink in, everyone. He hasn't said a word about it yet. Right, uh, we shall move on, but safe to say there is a lot of coverage uh, uh, on the website uh, from the Munich Security Conference. You can check that out on CNBC.com.
0: Now, coming up on the show, new year and perhaps a new year in Minby. We'll take a look at the strength of the Chinese consumer. That's after Lunar New Year. Tourism revenues absolutely smashed last year's figures. Plus, it's also a bumper week for British bank earnings. I'll take you through what you can expect. That's later this hour. And don't miss our conversation then with the World Bank Deputy Chief Economist Ihan Kose as the organization warns we could be experiencing the weakest five years of growth in 30 years.
4: Welcome back, U.S. Wholesale prices rose more than expected in January, with the producer price index increasing 0.3% for the month. That's the biggest move in five months. It follows the, uh, the hottish CPI data and complicates the picture for the Fed moving forward yet again. With markets scaling back expectations, the central bank would uh, start cutting rates uh, from June. Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic told our U.S. colleagues uh, that he sees two to three rate cuts this year
0: my outlook is to start the normalization, start returning our, our product policies uh, stance to a more neutral stance in the summertime. Right? And I'll have to say, a, a year ago, six months ago, I was in the fourth quarter. So we've seen tremendous progress, and I'm hopeful that that continues. If that continues, I'll be willing to pull it forward even further, but I want to see it continue before making that judgment.
1: You still think three rate cuts this year?
0: Well, that that's what was in the dot plot. I was one of the two rate cut increases, okay. uh, so I'm still at two, uh, but if I pull it forward, if the, if the data comes in more positively, I could move to three
1: for sure. Uh, right across the board for major markets Friday and across the trading week, uh, so snapping a five-week winning streak as we wrapped up the trade Friday. If you look at some of the numbers, eight-tenths down on the Nasdaq and in fact uh, tech stocks in reverse so we had uh, fang names losing about two and a quarter of the cent for the trading week other parts of tech universe slightly more supportive but just not those fang plus stocks and if you look at the Friday session uh, one of the big fallers for the S&P 500 was Alphabet that was one of the stocks undermining the direction but uh, across from the major boards to Dow Jones transports as well you saw a reversal of trade seven day view down 3.6% is it signaling direction for markets often seen as somewhat of a precursor to the, the broader market action so we've climbed to these uh, fresh records now we've drifted off the question is where do we go to from here monetary policy is still key and of course the earnings at this stage and in terms of what we're looking at this week as we gear up uh, markets looking ahead to the treasury market as well we've got a number of other earnings nvidia is going to be a big one for markets don't forget uh, big ai leadership from that stock but treasuries too as uh, we take a look at that 10-year 4.28 where we are perched the market has seen uh, the the um, heat just fire up a little bit on this treasury market again in recent weeks and uh, whether that has any impact again on big tech names as we continue to see further report cards roll across the tape let's take a look at the dollar with that 4.28 in mind dollar this morning We are on the back foot mostly across the board. Sterling dollar, you can see, traveling up by just over a tenth of a percent. 126.60 in the trade. We're 107.80 on euro dollar. dollar Dollar-yen in reverse. We are 150, the handle just slightly below that too to the Asian markets and uh, what we've got a big focus on in Chinese markets and uh, what we've got post lunar New Year holiday. The spending patterns telling us that we've bounced uh, post uh, those COVID reopening numbers. And at this stage, the market is scooping up that news from the tourism stocks nine tenths higher. On the trade across in the Chinese markets and across in Hong Kong, we're traveling in the opposite direction. We're down 1%. Well, speaking of which, Chinese Lunar New Year tourism revenues surged almost 50% on the year to more than 630 billion yuan, coming in above pre pandemic levels. The data will come as a relief for policymakers in the world's second largest economy, which has struggled with disinflationary pressures and a weaker consumer. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam has felt as though the Chinese markets needed some good news, and they got a dose of it with these spending figures.
6: Very good morning to you, Karen. Yes, indeed, you are seeing certainly the encouraging travel data, which uh, you were just talking about, uh, offering some temporary relief for investors in this part of the world as the Chinese uh, A-share market, of course, came back online today for the year of the dragon. Uh, Certainly in terms of those numbers, uh, they were strong when you look at uh, comparisons to 2023 levels, but we, of course, are dealing with a low base. So we saw $88 billion worth of revenue that was raked in. That was around a 50% rise on last year. It was around 474 million trips of people zipping across the country. Uh, That was also up about 34% year on year. But of course, given that base effect, it is important to to compare those numbers to pre-pandemic levels. And actually, uh, what we saw with these figures was that they broke past uh, 2019 levels. So uh, that was certainly the encouraging sign. But uh, while certainly the numbers do look strong, uh, many economists are still remaining cautious. Uh, Certainly when you look at the tourism uh, spend per head, per individual, uh, it did certainly look strong soft actually it was down on pre-pandemic levels so uh, when you look at this holiday in terms of a barometer for consumption it, it is very important to look at that because we do know that many Chinese people are continuing to save their money keeping it under the mattress uh, certainly for when the economy starts to uh, improve in a more meaningful way uh, but a lot of that spending of course that uh, was also at the box office uh, we do know that this is a big focus for the Chinese government in terms of that domestic spending we did see uh, that actually raking it around one uh, billion dollars in revenue, so that was a record high. So what we've seen today is investors' traders piling into a lot of those tourism stocks off the back of the numbers, but also uh, some of those uh, media stocks as well. Uh, but as I say, uh, while this offers some um, temporary relief for the markets and certainly has uh, allowed the markets to kick off uh, the year, certainly on a positive note, the big question is just how sustainable this is going to be, because we do continue to have these persistent problems uh, in the uh, economy, of course, with the problems in the housing markets. Also, as you mentioned, with the deflationary pressures, uh, the weak consumer demand. Uh, So we'll start to see that, of course, in the data uh, in the next month or so, as of course they are combining the January-February numbers to strip out some of that distortion that is caused around the Lunar New Year holiday. But uh, while we did get some positive data in terms of uh, some of those travel numbers, uh, we did certainly get sort of a a bit of a reality check in terms of the, the Chinese economy, some sobering numbers when it came to the foreign direct investment out over the weekend, which is perhaps keeping some of those gains in check, sort of capping any sort of more meaningful upside that we could perhaps have seen uh, on the mainland markets today as they kicked off that trade. Uh, so we did see uh, FDI actually uh, falling, hitting the lowest level in around 30 years uh, over in China. So we looked at uh, $33 billion in 2023. That's down 80% uh, from 2022 levels. Of course, there's no uh, secret that, of course, foreign firms are pulling billions of dollars out of China. Right now, we've seen a lot of reporting Around this, we've seen President Xi Jinping, of course, over uh, in the US as well, uh, trying to pitch to these US corporates. Uh, so, this perhaps doesn't bode well for China, particularly given last year was supposed to be the year of investment and opening up. All, all eyes now uh, shifting to the loan prime rate fixing tomorrow. Uh, no change to the medium term lending facility rate over the weekend, which acts as a bit of a precursor. But hey, look, the PBOC has surprised us before. So, let's see what happens tomorrow. Nice, Dan, back to you in London.
4: Nice work, Sam. Thank you very much indeed for that. And uh, Um, I I think very interesting. The West is looking at that domestic demand story with interest as well, whether it can pick up enough not to actually then mean that there is problems that the Chinese are going to solve by exporting the way out of it, but exporting in an unfair way. There's two headlines in the FT, which I want to draw to our attention. I saw over the weekend. One, China's EV suppliers look to leverage superior tech to recouple with the West and drive expansion. Absolutely natural, and that's in electric vehicles. They have a, a great edge in many ways. But then the other big headline is, US says it will act if China dumps goods on global markets. So on one hand, can China grow its economy domestically? They hope to, but if they can't get what they want for the economy there, then they move to the export side of stories by going aggressively on that. But then, obviously, how does Europe, Europeans and how does the U.S. react?
1: Hard to see those trade issues disappearing in an election yeah, year, a presidential election year. Right. I want to pick up on the domestic side, though. We've got Winnie Wu with us, China equity strategist, Bank of America Securities. Winnie, some analysis by uh, rival house Goldman Sachs saying that they were seeing consumption downgrading still happening in the numbers over the weekend. It just give us a sense as to how strong you thought the domestic consumption picture was thanks to the spending figures we've been given. Mm, Yeah, thank
5: you. Uh, For the Chinese New Year consumption data, I think we see a few trends that's worth noting. One is there's increased seasonality, that Chinese people still want to spend money, do their trips, family gathering during the holiday seasons, but those tend to be much more concentrated during holiday seasons. Well, you know, the non holiday time consumptions might be much weaker. So, while we're seeing very strong data around Chinese New Year, keep in mind of this hyper seasonality and watch the sustainability of the so called consumption recovery. And second thing is, we see generally stronger trend in services activities rather than goods. And in terms of, you know, for example, locations of people travel, people now prefer lower tier cities instead of, you know, the top tier cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen. Instead, people are now going to northeastern China, some places in inland China, tier four, tier five cities, uh, for partly better cost, uh, better cost control. So, you know, to some extent, the consumption downgrade trend is still continuing despite the strong Chinese New Year data.
1: Can I pick up on one of the positives? And it's been the news flow around the semiconductor space, just how advanced China is becoming when it, uh, it uh, takes on semiconductors. And you point out China's on the cusp of the next generation chip production despite those U.S. curbs. Uh, what's the tipping point here for China when it comes to semiconductors? How much further can it drive this technology?
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, these technological innovations are not linear in development. Clearly, it's a very high priority issue for China. There's a lot of emphasis, a lot of focuses from the universities, academia to you know the stock market in terms of promoting the related listing of these semiconductor startups. So the nation is trying very hard. But on the other side, you know, is this something China can really break through on its own without you know with increasing constraints of access to the Western technologies software equipment this is still a big question mark I think we need to watch and I would say the next couple of years this year and next year are probably the very critical time because you know the development of AI is growing so fast that if China cannot make enough progress in terms of catching up they may they may really face the risk of miss out
4: Winnie, I want to get into the psychology of the Chinese consumer at the moment. Uh, And they are one of the world's greatest saving nations for all kinds of reasons. One, that they don't have the same social safety net as well. So they need to save more for themselves. But if I was a Chinese consumer, and again, I'm not, so I'm trying to put myself in that shoe. I've seen my stock market holdings obliterated in terms of the value. I've seen my property holdings and investments obliterated in the value as well. When I put money on deposit as well, I see very low interest rates because the government is trying to stimulate via the PBOC keeping rates low as well why would I go and spend more money if I was a Chinese consumer who's had all of these factors affecting me
5: Mm. Um, I guess a few things Uh, first of all you're right in terms of the savings Last year, if you look at the household deposit savings growth, it has been growing at 15 to 18% year on year for most of last year. So people are actually saving a lot of money, and that's partly because you know they are spending less, they invested less, there were less investment in stocks, in wealth management products, in buying properties. So people do have cash in their bank account. In terms of bank's deposit rate, Currently, the big five, large SOE banks offer around 1.55% for time deposit rate. Lower tier, second tier banks offer around 1.75% when your CPI is actually small negative, right? Zero to negative 1%. So the real deposit rate is actually not bad. Real deposit rate is more like positive 2.5%. And also, you know, in terms of Ah, uh, consumption or tourism. China, a lot of the cost is actually very controllable. Living costs in China, traveling costs, the cost of you know hotel nights, especially in lower tier cities, are actually very affordable. Especially after three years of lockdown, I think Chinese consumers do want to you know enjoy their life, especially in those major holidays.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And good luck to them if they can as well. Okay, with that in mind, then Winnie. Where would you direct our international viewers to look at when we're looking at the the Chinese equity market? Is there any particularly obvious places that they should be looking at?
5: Mm. Yeah, generally, you know, we remain... um constructively cautious on the Asia, uh, on the china market we think valuations are quite low so you know no need to be overly bearish given the already low expectation low positions however we believe some of the structural issues will take time play out to play out so for 2024 we still say that play defensive high yield defensive names are probably still the core holding but on the other side, we do see value emerge in some of the, you know, for example, large-cap internet companies where you know, these companies, if they have pricing power, if they can defend their market share, if they can gain market share, whether it's domestically or globally, you know, we want to buy market share winners in this kind of market.
1: Winnie, can I ask you quickly about the auto market? A lot of price competition is suggested there. We've also seen in international markets even slow down adoption of EVs. How would you describe or depict the situation on EVs in China as we progress throughout 2024?
5: Yeah. Um, so we're still forecasting positive growth in terms of the you know, EV sales, in terms of the EV battery supply chain, but clearly the growth in 2024 and even 2025 are going to be substantially slower than the past two, three years, given the already very high penetration in the domestic market and also given the potential trade tensions, tariffs in other developed markets. So companies that have more export exposure in global south, in like Southeast Asia, will probably be better positioned companies relying more on the developed market will probably see more pressure, especially given the rising geopolitical tensions and the sensitivity around the EV batteries.
1: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving
4: news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.